0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
1: Money Talk!
0: Good morning, this is Peter Lewis, welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday the 28th of February. It's Budget Day in Hong Kong, and I'll have a comprehensive analysis of Financial Secretary Paul Chan's 2024 budget with my guests on the show this week. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headline, Ahead of Financial Secretary Paul Chan's budget speech later this morning, the ASEAN Plus 3 Macroeconomic Research Office, known as AMRO, has published its 2023 annual consultation report on Hong Kong. The report concludes that the Hong Kong economy is poised to sustain its steady recovery, moving towards trend growth this year. The report recommends that with growing external uncertainties and geopolitical risks, it will be important for Hong Kong to further diversify its economic base Widen its global reach and continue to address structural challenges such as an ageing population, housing supply and social inclusion. Hong Kong's lived-in home prices fell for the ninth straight month in January, dropping 1.6% and leaving the city's official home price index at levels last seen more than seven years ago. Secondary market prices of Hong Kong homes have retreated 23% from their peak in September 2021, according to government statistics. The latest data piles further pressure on Financial Secretary Paul Chan to remove property cooling measures in his budget later today. Japan's core inflation slowed for the third consecutive month, complicating the path for the Bank of Japan to lift interest rates. The core consumer price index, which excludes fresh food but includes fuel costs, slowed to 2% in January from 2.3% in December. That's the lowest reading since March 2022. However, the core inflation print came in above economists' expectations for a further slowdown to 1.8%. And Japan's core inflation is now within the central bank's 2% target after exceeding that level for 21 consecutive months. The city of Shenzhen has rolled out plans for a big expansion of car exports, a move that's likely to fan fears among Western countries of overcapacity in the industry. The municipal government of Shenzhen, where the world's largest electric vehicle maker BYD has its headquarters unveiled 24 measures, including support for factory construction, opening new sea routes and allowing another 20 companies to export second-hand cars, according to a statement released by the City's Commerce Bureau. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield and Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. And if you have any questions or comments, please post them on my Money Talk website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, and I'll try my best to fit them into the show. Peter
2: Lewis is Money
0: Talk. On Wall Street, US stocks were mixed Tuesday as traders await key economic data later in the week, including PCE inflation and the second GDP growth estimates. The S&P 500 inched up 0.2% to 5,078. The Dow fell 97 points, or a third of a percent, to close at 38,972. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 have eased from record highs hit last week after NVIDIA's stellar earnings report. The Nasdaq added 0.4% to end at 16,035. Small caps outpaced the main US indices. The Russell 2000, which tracks 2,000 small cap stocks, was up 1.3% its fourth day of gains. The 10-year Treasury yield ended the day four basis points higher at 4.31%. And Fed funds futures are pricing odds of 59% that the Federal Reserve will deliver its first interest rate cut of the year in June. The dollar index remained unchanged, around 103.8 on Tuesday as investors awaited the release of key data. The Japanese yen gained 0.1% against the dollar, reaching 150.5, following inflation figures that have raised expectations of the Bank of Japan ending its negative interest rate policy later this year. There was no change in the yuan in offshore in onshore markets ahead of Friday's PMI data. It was trading at 7.19 and three-quarter renminbi per dollar in Shanghai. Gold almost unchanged on the day at $2,030 an ounce. Brent crude oil settled 1.2% higher at $82.66 a barrel. And Bitcoin surpassed $57,000 for the first time since late 2021. In US trading, the world's biggest cryptocurrency rose almost 5% on the day to $57,130. Japanese stock markets continue to climb to historic highs. The Nikkei 225 traded just six points higher to, cl- to close at a new all time high of 39,240. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index closed 1.3% higher at 3,015, rising above 3,000 for the first time since the 4th of December last year. And Hong Kong stocks rose for the first time in three sessions. The Hang Seng Index jumped 156 points or 0.9% to end at 16,791. Swinging from a sharp drop in morning trading, the tech index surged 3.2%. Li Auto soared 25.5% after making its first ever annual net profit. Looks like going to be a small gain for the Hang Seng at the open. Futures markets pointing to a rise have about 30 points, taking the index to 16,820 when trading gets going this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at uh, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis. Let's welcome our Tuesday morning guests, sorry, our Wednesday morning guests uh, we have with us, as we do every Wednesday morning, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, Enzio von Faal. Morning to you, Enzio.
3: Morning to you, Peter.
0: And also joining us is Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Morning to you, Richard.
2: Uh, Hello, very good
0: morning to you. Uh, Well, let's start in Hong Kong. We have Paul Chan due to deliver his budget speech later on this morning. Lots of recommend, recommendations for him, but a lot of them seem to be focused on the spicy uh, property measures. But before we get to that, um, NCO, tell me a little bit about what, what you hope to see in the uh, the budget this morning.
3: Well, to be singularly unoriginal, it really is this, this cut in the stamp duty. I think it's about time that that relief measure be put in. Um, I'm afraid that with the rising tax hike. I don't want to say this, but I would not be surprised to see a tax hike, a rising budget deficit, a tax hike come in, in the next couple of years. I'm afraid that um, the, the spending has just been a bit too fast. And so I, I, that's kind of going to have to happen, I'm afraid. I don't think the mainland will be very pleased about this, but that's the way it is.
0: Do you think we can afford to, to remove these, uh, these property cooling measures?
3: Well, it's either that or the or the property market remains as moribund as it has, so I think it would certainly just from speaking anecdotally with friends of mine here on the street, so to speak um it i th- I think it would at least give some uh, sort of a feel good factor back to the property market. I think that's about as as good as it would get hmm. um i I'm afraid that it, until we really assume some some responsibility in Hong Kong for defining our own destiny as indeed China wishes us to do, like improving English, like improving vocational training and things of this nature. I think that it, this, this report that, that you will be citing later on, that we are still in a robust economic recovery, I'm not buying any of that. I don't see it certainly in my 30 years here.
0: Hmm. Richard, what would you like to see?
2: Well, I think Enzio is bang on. In in fact, I'm quite surprised that the budget has uh, so little of new interest uh, that it does at a time like this. I mean, to go back to the property cooling measures, it's absolutely extraordinary that they haven't relieved them so far. I mean, they should have really gone during the COVID era or Mm. at the beginning of the COVID era because they were put in because we had uh, a lot of money coming out of China squeezing people out of hong kong property well that game ended years ago it may well come back but in which case we can put in some different measures but to have these measures now you know one wonders why uh they're not just all off immediately um in terms of uh hong kong and 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 where we're going i think actually nzio is Uh, makes a very good point you know we are looking now at uh, deficit financing in the budget which is something of course that everybody in the world does except for Hong Kong Um, basically meaning that we we borrow to pay some of our way so having a, a bit of a deficit to knock down some of our surplus actually I think is actually not a bad idea but I think NCOs Right, you know, we have very low taxes here. We're probably in a situation where the golden days, where we could just milk money off the property market, are over. Yes, um, and it wouldn't be surprising to see our tax rates move, say, nearer Singapore, nearer the twenty percent than the fifteen. Not mm. something either of us would welcome. Um, no. but you know, this is raw economics
0: even if those properties those spicy calling measures as they're known on the on the property sector were removed of course it doesn't guarantee that home prices are suddenly going to start going up again does it
2: no it's pushing on a string isn't it oh. uh, but at least it it has to help i mean nothing's going to really help the property market except for demand and that demand is likely to come from china and that's likely to come with a uh, a, a renewal of, um, you know, significant economic growth in China. I think that will come, but it's very slow at the moment. NGO,
0: it's a little bit ironic, isn't it? floor. Sorry. No, you carry on.
3: Well, I was just going to add to what Richard was saying that it may put a floor under the property descent. In other words, mm. it doesn't exactly increase the prices here, but at least it it helps to sort of pro- provide a, a form of a base for the property prices not to fall much further.
0: I find it a bit ironic all this, all this hand-wringing about the property market because for years you know we've been mm. saying we need to make the property market more affordable. It's too many people who are excluded from well, it. Yeah, it. It yeah. is now. It's about 25% more affordable. But, uh, of course, people don't like that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, well that's a good I, yeah. I mean, so much of Hong Kong is in public housing and almost no public yes. housing has been built. Hmm. I think that's that's that's
3: the the, the real rub. I agree with Richard. That's the real bottleneck. It's not sort of the public at large. I think it's it's the people I really feel sorry for these poor wretches who just don't have any place to live in and I, it's just awful. It's a mm. blemish. And despite yeah. the main and keeping on telling us to do something about it, it's just no movement.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the deficits. Um, it looks like it's going to be around a hundred billion dollars. Some people say it could be as much as 130 billion Hong Kong dollars, which would be the third biggest shortfall on record. What does this change um, for us? Because it's not something that we're used to, is it? And, and certainly until very recently, um, what has the government got to do um, about it? And, and what are we going to notice in, in terms of how it's going to deal with this?
3: I think it needs, if I may just take the lead here and stick my neck out yet again, I think that these white elephant projects that they are touting just have to go. The land tout tomorrow and all this kind of stuff just has to get out of the system. All of these sort of little uh, concocted ideas, um, I I really think that they could cut back a lot on wastage of spending. Um, Indeed, he was mooting a civil service tax um, pay cut. Uh, how that will go down politically with his own employees, I don't know. But I think it's it's the overspending. And then secondly, also really putting in some economic measures to get the pace going. I mean, how can we, for instance, we, we read last week that we're supposed to be the Greater Bay Area part of that. Then this week we read that the boss of the Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office, I think quite correctly, says we should be an international financial center. Well. Now even I'm getting a bit confused as to about what, what's supposed to happen. But if we don't have any growth empathy from the top here, then we can cut all we want and spending. Um, no more income will be coming in.
2: Richard, well, wants- I'll give an example of that. The, uh, the government is looking at putting nearly a billion dollars into the tourist industry. Um, And by their own figures, the tourist industry is 4.5% of GDP. Mm -hmm. It's really, even though it seems to be quite big, employs a lot of people, it's actually a very small part of the economy. So by putting that huge amount of money into the GDP, you know, if it was a company, we would be injecting something like 14 billion into the economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And here we are putting it in one small sector. Um, so Enzio is dead right. There are plenty of places that we can economize, plenty of places that we can make get more bang for our buck. Uh, but at the moment, with uh, follies like the Lantau Tomorrow project, um, we're, we're really a little bit held at ransom. Hmm. Oh, or to-
3: indeed also the, the, the chubby hearts. I mean, how on earth is that supposed to generate growth when you have a bunch of <laughs> mainland tourists who come to, to Hong Kong with a list? issued by friends in, in, in Shenzhen, how to do Hong Kong on the cheap. How are we going to boost the economy by them taking more photographs of a couple of balloons strutting around in the air, one of which I've gathered flew away or at least popped or something. It's just so kind of ridiculous.
1: Mm.
2: Well, if well we lo- it does seem strange that we're looking to uh, fund Taylor Swift, etc, for coming to Hong Kong, making a rich person even richer.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> yes, well put.
0: I mean, if you, if you look at this, uh, this AMRO report, they say that uh, they oh. expect Hong Kong's uh, economy to rebound. They're, they're quite, uh, quite bullish on things like domestic consumption and the surge in inbound tourism. And they say that's going to keep the economy growing at around about three and a half percent this year. Um, do you agree with that?
3: I don't know how much they were paid for the report. I've never heard of the outfit, Richard, of you.
2: I hadn't, no. It was interesting. But I think to a certain extent, I think, <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a no-brainer. Of course, the trend is that Hong Kong is going to recover. Um, they were really talking about some fairly basic stuff, which um, mm. uh, which many observers outside Hong Kong, including the uh, Stephen Roach, who was the uh, famous analyst at Morgan Stanley, um, people come to Hong Kong just off the boat and think they know a great deal about it. But um, I guess yes. probably if you take our years in hong kong together we're probably over 120 130 so we should have a little bit of gravitas in terms of this analysis
3: i would correct your english knows everything about it i'm sorry
0: but well, what, what, what do you think about the the, the economic forecast though and uh, being supported by uh cross-border travel and, and tourism are, are you not convinced by that
3: i'm not convinced I, by the cross-border tourism I, excuse me richard
0: no,
2: no, no. I, I, I was about to follow up what you were saying. Yeah, Yes, it does seem that these are relatively small aspects uh, in, in the whole piece. I mean, uh, I think as you mentioned earlier, Enzio, we need to find a way for Hong Kong to develop. Um, yes. And uh, Nida Shah was saying the other day, is, you know, Hong Kong does need to be uh, focusing on its role as a financial centre and a logistics centre and an organizational yes. centre. We shouldn't be necessarily worrying about tourism for Half percent of GDP.
3: I, I really don't ag- agree with this report that robust domestic consumption, hence, wh- where is that coming from? The surge in inbound tourism. I totally agree with what Richard's saying. Um, but what I would say is that there was a very interesting article in the Financial Times just yesterday by this very erudite China expert, James King, and his colleague, about um, China's new growth pivot. Um, with trade going more and more into their into their free trade agreement areas, which account for 38% of all their exports, and also focusing more and more on the um, ASEAN, which actually last year China exported more to ASEAN, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, than it did to the U.S., which I find very interesting. Um, so... That's at least a ray of hope that if that we are always the water skier off the back of the Chinese speedboat, and I think that if China continues with this this shift in trade policies away from the G seven to the much safer developing world where you don't have the U S. telling you every three minutes what to do, then I think that um that there might be maybe Hong Kong has the impetus to then carve out a niche
0: in that. I mean, that that article was also suggesting that with the WTO basically gridlocked because the the appellate body just can't meet at the moment and make any decisions, um, it's actually China that benefits. It doesn't need the World Trade Organization because it can develop its own World Trade Organization around the Belt and Road Initiative countries and the global south.
3: Absolutely. I think that that's a very refreshing Piece of analysis that I certainly haven't seen anywhere else. That they, um, that China, because in the old days that Richard, you and I grew up in, the IMF was really pretty much the master of all third world debt. Well, that's now changed a great deal. I think only one third of third world debt is 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 channeled through the IMF. I stand to be corrected on that. I, I I'll, I'll totally admit that, but it's it doesn't have the same import, the same gravitas this u s led organization that it used to, and I think that 's very important to just look take a look and see what what china's doing i 'm on the outskirts and how how that could help us
2: Yes, I think what 's uh, likely to happen is we 're going to see the these bipartisan activities. So that, for instance, there's a lot of worry in Europe and the US about dumping of electric vehicles. Now, China is, Mm. um, without a doubt, the leader in electric vehicle manufacturing and probably also uh, technology uh, in the world. But clearly, they also have very low labour costs compared to car workers in in the West. Um, And that, I think, is going to be a threat which will be addressed with uh, duties and um, maybe even sanctions. So, um in a sense, you can't really blame these countries because otherwise their own car industry is going to be mm. destroyed. Uh, but on the other hand, it is going to be, I think, an indication of how trade is going to be conducted over the next
0: decade. What was interesting is yes. Hong Kong's had its first uh, trade surplus for, um, what, about two years now? I presume, um, NCO, that maybe is a good sign uh, about China trade.
3: I think there's a bit of pickup, but uh, just to, re- to, to bang my own drum on this one – I did also suggest that China's trade surplus is very much because of the very successful U.S. multinationals operating in China, not as much exporting from China, but replacing American imports into China. Logically, put, if Coca-Cola is being produced in China, then why buy it from America? So that cuts down, uh, that, that then gives rise to a
2: surplus for the Chinese. The interesting thing about Hong Kong's increase in exports is they're clearly all made in China, sure. because many of them. Uh, that I yes. mentioned are manufacturing exports, and the last time I saw a factory in Hong Kong was probably in the eighties.
0: And a lot of, course, of that yes. kind of volume—it's all re-exports, isn't it? Going through uh, going through Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you both about Japan. We've had some economic data out uh, that's quite important. The Cold Consumer Price Index, which excludes fresh Mm. food, does include fuel, though, slowed to 2% in January from 2.3% in December. That's the lowest reading now uh, since March 2022. Um, And the the inflation print came in, though above economists' expectations. They were expecting a further slowdown to 1.8%. So where does this leave the Bank of Japan and its efforts to try and dig itself out of its negative monetary, uh, negative interest rate policy hole that it's found itself in.
3: I think that the Bank of Japan will very cautiously move out of this hole. um, But the encouraging bit is really that economic growth um, is not, first of all, there's no parallel with the 1986 to 91. I just wanted to address that because a number of people have been asking, I think all of us about this. First of all, 86, 91, we had very strong economic growth in Japan and very strong, booming real estate market. That clearly isn't the case today. So I don't think that one can draw too many parallels with the past that we've had. The, the wages growth is, is exceeding 4% per year in nominal terms, I, I must admit. But um, at least it's, it's on the right trajectory because people will then be encouraged that there'll be a, a certain feel-good factor to spend more of that money. And i don 't think that even if they raise the interest rates in Japan we'll see what we had in the exactly what we had in the states that despite a rise in the price of money the there is no excess demand for money being created they 're not tightening because for that they would have to be withdrawing money from the system i don 't think they will be doing that for quite some time. They have to get this pace going again, so I think it 's a buy
2: well that's right it's extraordinary it's extraordinary that japan you know the market is now at an all time high when um Uh, Those of us more grizzled, all three of us remember Japan hitting its last high uh, in Mm. 1989. Um, Mm. And since then, it's been uh, uh, probably the real standout in terms of how uh, economists would look at it, because nobody's really understood it. You know, how can the country continue? It's got almost no inflation. It's got almost no growth for a very long period of time when it's got a very, very strong currency. Um, but it's quite interesting because if you correlate the weakness, the collapse of the yen, it correlates quite nicely over the last six, seven, eight years with the rise in the stock market. So there is uh, – the market is obviously oh. very related to the currency. Um, hey, but on top of that, what is particularly interesting is that as the Japanese market has gone up, it hasn't necessarily created the same feel-good factor as it would in other markets, You know, which would lead to – Uh, The same kind of thing happening in property markets, in prices, this kind of thing. So Mm. it is a bit of a conundrum, but I think the lesson is that that Japan is fundamentally a very strong economy, even if our measurements don't really pick it up.
0: I mean, there was a really good feel factor, wasn't there, back in 1989, not least because of the property market, which was, which was absolutely mm. um, surging. And we all remember those stories of things like the land that the Imperial Palace stood on in Tokyo becoming worth more than yes. the whole U.S. state of California. That's how, that's how big <laughs> yes, the bubble yes, got. exactly,
2: yeah. Yeah, I remember walking through the Ginza and an apple was $40 U.S., um, <laughs> And uh, we took our, our uh, four month old daughter out for a, a for dinner, and we bought a pizza for $50. And she basically ate all of it. <laughs> so um, uh, those were extraordinary times. We all wondered how Japan would survive. But, you know, it did. Economies adapt and adjust, and uh, people get on with it.
0: I mean, the other statistic that was interesting is back in 1989, when the Japanese market was last at an all time high, 15 of the biggest of the top 20 uh, companies in the world were Japanese. Mm. Um, you know, we had mm. some of the biggest banks in the world. Um, there are companies like uh, Sony and, and Toyota, the trading houses. Um, now, I don't think there's a single Japanese company in, in the top 20, is there? You,
2: you know, currency is the paper on which it's all written. So Mm -hmm. the currency goes up, value goes up, and vice versa. Sorry, Times
3: change. I was just watching the Alexander the Great series, and if one's heard of Babylon and all these old great cities of of yore, well, they're not around anymore either. So, I mean, it's all changing, and there's no reason why (laughs) Japan has a toehold on, on staying at the top.
0: What do you do, though, when um, you have markets like this at all-time highs? I mean, it's not the only one now, is it? We've got the S&P 500 and the Dow at all-time highs, the stocks 600 in Europe, and Germany's DAX hit it. We've got Taiwan, India close to all-time highs, or did actually exceed them for a while, and of course, Japan. What do you do? Are you supposed to follow the trend? Um, Do you step back and maybe look at some of these other beaten down markets like Hong Kong and mainland China, which are way, way off? off um, their all-time highs. Richard?
2: Yeah, I think the answer is it all depends. You know, what goes up must come down. Mm. And I've always been wary of all-time highs because generally uh, they do uh, portend uh, the the fact that there is a lot of um, expensive uh, investments in the market. But I think we are also in an era where this massive influx of cash coming in through COVID is still wandering Mm. through the system. Yes. Um, And what we're seeing is really we're not necessarily seeing inflation in the shops, although it's obviously gone up a lot. But we we are seeing inflation in financial assets uh, because there's people who've managed to accumulate all that cash Mm -hmm. that was generated during the crises. um, They stick it into assets and Mm -hmm. um, uh, especially the stock market being most liquid. It's going up. So normally you would say that it's at a high and we're likely to come back, but who knows? We've now got liquidity coming in, changing the whole narrative of what stock markets used to be valued on.
3: That's indeed the the, the core principle of my economic clock, that if you have an excess supply of money, it has to go into asset markets. Those can also, of course, be properties, um, but very much, especially with the birth of the internet and the, democratization of, of investments for the retail investor and then of course also with all of these algorithms, these lizards flying about, I think that you'll find more strength in the stock market. I am um, I tend to be quite keen on Japan, on India um, and I think you just dollar cost average into these places. In other words, you don't go whole hog. You just, so in other words you're not putting, in, you're not betting the whole farm on it um, and, and you may be Nobody knows how close to the top we really are. I mean, we all have our theories, of course, but nobody knows. So maybe that's one chicken's way out of of, in, of getting into the market without going whole hog as my dollar cost averaging on the way up and then back on the way down.
2: I, I think the other interesting thing about these all-time highs is I was looking at greater China, of course, and we've had a difficult time in the markets in China and Hong Kong. Mm. But, of course, Taiwan's just bust an all-time high. And the reason it's done that is, of course, because this whole – furore and narrative around artificial intelligence and of course Taiwan um, is quite key in that yes. in terms of its um, design uh, of, of chips um, so it is interesting that we are having some themes coming through and I think the latest theme has been driven a lot by AI uh, with a lot of people talking about uh, machine learning and mm-hmm. AI although we have, uh, uh, people don't really seem to be talking from a position of uh, extreme knowledge We're in the very early days of that.
0: When you see markets like Japan and India at all-time highs, do you at least take some comfort from the fact that maybe you know you're buying in at the um, you know at all-time highs? But nevertheless, there's some fundamental transformations going on in these markets that could justify it. In, in Japan's case, the the corporate reforms that are taking mm-hmm. place, and in India, the fact that you know its whole economy is just being transformed at the moment. It's got a very young, dynamic, fast-growing uh, population. Are, are those things that you? sort of say, okay, well, you know, these all-time highs are justified and they could carry on making all-time highs for several years yet.
3: I think one has to adopt that policy. When I was learning under von Hayek, it was always, he always said that you don't just do economics from the vantage of an economist to demand supply rigidity. You also look at other things like, in my case, music and art and philosophy and psychology. And also so these things also just the, the fundamental change in the mentality comes into it. I wouldn't overrate Japan having covered it for years. The change of mentality is going to be very, very slow indeed, but at least it's a step in the right direction. India, I'm not really qualified to talk about, frankly none of these countries, but um, I would add with Japan that at least the, with the younger generation coming back from the Harvards, the Yales, etc., cetera, um, from abroad, and injecting maybe a, a fresh douse of realism into the Japanese corporate market, I think that there's at least a, a hope. Even though, of course, as we all know, the they just they've they've gone through a mini recession, and that will the excess supply of goods will still remain for some time. It just gets less bad over time.
0: What is interesting is that uh, Warren Buffett was saying over the weekend in his annual shareholders letter, he can't find anything mm. to buy. Um, he's got, what is it, $147 billion worth of cash yes. and doesn't know what to what to do with it. And there's just no opportunities left, um, he was saying, in the US. Maybe does he need to start looking elsewhere then? Maybe he needs to look in Japan and India and markets out here.
2: Well, I, I, I thought I, he was I already doing right. that, think,
3: Richard, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah he's already... He's already um, uh, he was invested quite uh, heavily, I think, in BYD, for instance. So uh, he has been looking overseas. But uh, you're right, his whole basis has really been in the U.S. market. And I think he's often mm. said that, uh, uh, you know, he, he could never reinvent himself again because the U.S. was at a particular moment in time when um, uh, when he was able to invest that way. So I think he is largely talking about the U.S. market and the amount of um money uh, even cash that uh, berkshire hathaway has on on the balance sheet is is very very difficult to deploy so you can slightly see that if you're um, a value investor as as he is or a a, a, an enhanced value investor um that there are difficult opportunities so uh, i mean i think you're exactly right peter is is it is a big world out there and in a way he's been lucky that the u.s has been a a stonkingly successfully performing market over the last um, 30 years. Um, But we probably have to think that other markets are going to start doing well as well.
3: And would you... Also, again, with
2: with increased
3: multinational presence worldwide, this whole, I'm not buying this decoupling story worldwide. I think, if anything, the multinationals will be investing more and more directly into other economies because they want to tap into that demand in the local demand.
0: And would those other markets to look at, Richard, include China and Hong Kong? The fact that they're beaten down so much now, despite the problems and despite the restrictions now that the authorities are putting on you being able to get out of the market, even if you do go in, um, are you tempted?
2: Well, my... my, uh... Uh, Let me plug my article in the South China Morning Post on Friday. Basically, lesson one is what goes up must come down. But lesson eight is what goes down must come up. And I think actually uh, Hong Kong and China have been really hard hit in investment terms. They will recover. Uh, My general feeling has been it it really because China is such a policy-driven market that the stimulus has to come from the authorities who are working quite hard now to try and um, stimulate the economy, both in terms of the property sector and the uh, the stock market sector. But they still need the big bazooka. One of the things I think they're going to have to address is the property sector. And with the massive debt in that sector, I think they're probably going to have to do the same sort of thing as they did with the banks um, uh, some years ago, which is put all of that bad debt into what's called a bad bank. Not a very technical Mm. term, but uh, Mm. good enough for here. Um, and then allow the companies to recapitalize and move on from there, maybe with more controls on some of the excesses that they had in the past. So, I think that would be a very good sign. I'm pretty sure that the authorities are going to feel that they want that they're going to be forced into that sort of action, but they don't want to appear as if they're being forced into the action. They want the atmosphere to be such that they look as if they're making a proactive move. But I think we're not far from there. And when that happens, the China and the Hong Kong markets will take off.
0: OK, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts there. You heard Richard Harris, who is Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We had some important data, didn't we, from uh, Japan yesterday. The Core Consumer Price Index, which excludes fresh food but includes fuel costs, slowed to 2% in January from 2.3% in December. That's the lowest reading since March 2022. So, um the, uh, the core inflation prince is now at the central bank's uh, 2% target. So what does the Bank of Japan do?
1: Yes, I think um, all eyes are on what we can expect from the Bank of Japan. And I think it still remains the case that um, what we will end up seeing in the wage negotiations in uh, spring will really determine how we will see uh, monetary policy evolving. So, you know, the Bank of Japan is... Um, repeatedly repeatedly uh, making the point that um, it's necessary to boost real wages in order to achieve a sustainable um, level of inflation over the medium term. And as you know, real wages have been falling for some time, so it will be necessary to achieve nominal wage growth in excess of Um, prices um, in the spring negotiations, not only for the large firms, but also, of course, for the small and medium sized enterprises, which account for a a very large proportion of of the labor force, around 70%. So um, I think that sustainably achieving the inflation target is uh, a different proposition than achieving it um, at a particular point in time. I mean, the Bank of Japan talking about this virtuous circle that it hopes will um,
0: take hold, isn't it? Where basically the, the pace of wage growth exceeds inflation and therefore that will fuel domestic demand and also fuel uh, the economy overall. Are, are there signs that they're going to get that virtuous circle taking hold?
1: Well, as you know, domestic demand has been um, a problem um, in Japan for a long time and i think that there's an opportunity now to end that uh you know problem that domestic demand faces and and achieve some sustainable rises in in consumption over the medium term um and the reason i say that is because of course we have seen inflation in japan um over the last couple of years and we have also seen that these um, prices have been passed through to to consumers, which is something that has not been the case in the past. Um, So I think that, you know, firms are understanding that um, wage increases can be helpful to them in the long run, to the extent that it would generate domestic demand, generate consumption, and also as a result of that support economic activity. Um, So, I think, you know, the consensus view is relatively uh, positive on achieving um, nominal wage rise in excess of inflation. The real question really is whether small and medium sized enterprises can also um Pick up on uh, wages, because this will really determine whether we see real wage rises at the level of the broader economy. So when are we going to know that? Is it going to be
0: around March time that we'll we'll get a sense of whether um, Japan is going to see these wage increases that the Bank of Japan is looking to? Yes, we will.
1: We will know then what the situation is as regards the uh, negotiations with large firms. It will take a little bit longer to see how this um, spills over to other other sectors and, and other firms of different size. Um, but I think that um, a strong signalling uh, impact can be um, gleaned from from the spring negotiations and. You know, I think that, as I said, given the inflationary pressure that we've seen in Japan over the past couple of years, which is something unusual, and given that we have seen a pass-through of of these external price pressures to consumers, so it's even though the the price pressures were supply driven, we are seeing some uh, trickle of that through to to demand um, at the at the at the level of, of the consumer. So. I think we can be somewhat positive that we will see some pick up in real wages during 2024. So the the April meeting then, that that is a, a key meeting. It's a live
0: meeting, isn't it, where the Bank of Japan could finally end its negative interest rate policy?
1: That's correct. Um I think, you know, to a large extent the ending of the the negative rate I think is somewhat priced in by markets. But let's remember, you know, we're talking about a negative interest rate here. So even if the the Bank of Japan would remove that negative rate, we would still have a, you know, a relatively uh, accommodative monetary policy stance. We would still see uh pressure on the yen. Um but of course, um it, it would be a move towards um uh, tightness um albeit at at a at a very uh small magnitude. I think the bigger question for the yen will be what happens with US inflation and what happens with US monetary policy. Um you know th- this will really determine the, the size of, of the spread that we see between US and, and Japanese interest rates. And you know this is one of the factors that is really behind Um, the level of the yen that we're seeing at the moment.
0: Mm. There is some frustration, I I, I sense, in the markets uh, among investors that they just want the Bank of Japan to get on with it, saying to themselves, why don't they just go and uh, raise rates now um, before they miss the chance? Because actually, as you say, maybe soon the, uh, the Fed may be cutting rates. China is already easing monetary policy because it's in deflation. Is there a risk that if the Bank of Japan doesn't get on with it soon, it may miss the boat altogether?
1: That's a possibility, and that's one way to look at it. We also must remember the um, fragile state of the economy. As you know, at the end of uh, the last quarter of 2023, the economy in Japan entered into a technical recession, um, admittedly, a, a large portion of this was due to the, to the depreciation of the yen and valuation effects on on GDP. Um, nonetheless, it has entered a, a technical recession I, I, in that quarter. Um, this would also, of course, make it uh, somewhat problematic to to then decide to to hike interest rates. Um, as well as that, I think you know the underlying um, concern is whether. The achievement of inflation over the medium term could be done in in a sustainable manner Um, and and this would require um, you know as we just discussed a a situation where nominal wage rises would help to um, outweigh inflationary pressure and achieve that over the medium term so we need to look beyond um, the current level of inflation when deciding on monetary policy because uh, these uh, monetary policy changes can have lags, by which time they would uh, impact the economy.
0: Now, while this is all going on, um, the Nikkei 225 has hit a new all-time high, Uh, 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 achieved that peak last in uh, the final day of trading in December 1989. I remember it well. It was actually the very day I arrived in Tokyo for a three-year stint. I was blamed by my colleagues forever afterwards for bringing the bull market to an end. Um, This is an important psychological level, isn't it? It's... Traders have been waiting a long time to get over that 1989 hurdle. It's been sort of referred to as the iron coffin lid um, because it's been so unattainable now for, what, three and a half decades. So is there almost a feeling of relief that now it's there?
1: Well, I think it's um, not a coincidence that this boom that we've seen in the stock market comes at a time when the yen has been depreciating sharply. Um, And this has attracted huge... uh, Share of, of foreign investors into Japanese stocks, um, and has helped to to continue the the growth of the stock market throughout the, the course of 2023 and into 2024, despite the somewhat uh, you know fragile state of of the economy and somewhat tepid growth um, outlook going forward. So we see this uh, strong um, boom in the stock market due to this effect of. Um, you know the, the the level of the yen, implying that it's relatively cheap for foreign investors to come in to uh, invest. The other point, of course, is on um, corporate governance reform in Japan, which is aimed at improving valuations of firms, which is another factor which is important for um, driving the you know the, the the level of the of the stock market um, higher. And this could be something that could have longer-term uh, gains as well.
0: It's, it's very interesting, isn't it, to compare the economy now with the economy back in 1989 and just how different it was, because the economy then had been booming since, what, the mid-1980s. Um, there'd been a, not only a stock market bubble, but a property market bubble as well. But ultimately, people felt pretty good at the time in 1989 about the economy, not, not so much now. And certainly, you couldn't say the economy's booming at the moment. So, v- very big contrast between the the two eras.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think that's a, it's an important point. There are clearly differences between the two ears. Um, one thing that's notable perhaps, is that the, the current boom that we're seeing is perhaps more underlied by um, valuations that are closer to e- uh, equilibrium levels, or mm-hmm. closer to fundamentals. whereas what we saw back in '89 was um, uh, you know, more of an overheating feeling. Compared to what we see at the moment, so um, it basically implies that um, we would be more confident that we would not see a collapse to the extent that what we saw in in 1989. Because we, I I, I get the feeling that um, the, the overheating. Is um, less less of a concern in the current era compared to the past. Mm. Uh,
0: back in those days, there was uh, in 1989, tw- uh, 15 out of the the 20 largest companies in the world were Japanese. I, I don't think there's a single Japanese company now in the, in the top 20 largest companies in the world.
1: Yes, that's another big difference, of course. I think um, this is not this is basically a, a global phenomenon as. Um, You know, stock markets and uh, financial markets more broadly have become much more internationalised over the past uh, decades. Um, And and this is something that we see borne out in, in domestic stock markets as well.
0: John, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed and have a great day. Thank you, Peter. That's John Byrne, who is Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter. With a lot more business and finance news to go with the show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and Alex Foo-McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.